You're listening to Writers on a New England Stage with Carl Hyacin. This program originally aired in 2013. I don't have a book up here to read because um, I don't usually... I'll tell you one story why I don't read from... By, by the sort of... And you get in these book tours after a while, the excitement of reading your own words over and over again wears a little bit thin. And uh, I'd just rather talk about... Tell you some stories, some offensive stories, and see, see how you react to that. Um, I was doing a tour, and I was in um, L.A., and uh, there was a store called Book Soup on Sunset Boulevard, I think, and I was supposed to do a reading. And uh, it was the very end of the tour, and I was, I was whipped, and I wasn't in a real good mood. And they had me sit back in the stacks, you know, in, in the back of the store, just waiting to go on, waiting till whoever was going to introduce me. And I noticed I was sitting among giant stacks of the same book, and all around me was one book, and I had my own book kind of figuring out what I was, which what part I was going to read tonight, but I took this book, and it, I was so compelled by it. It was a book by a person named Paula Barbieri who dated O.J. Simpson for about five minutes <laughs> and got us uh, a big uh, six- or seven-figure book contract to tell the story of that burning romance. Um, and I happen to know for a fact that she, this is going to be shocking to you, she didn't write a word of it herself. Um, in fact, the only scene in which there's really any physical contact between the two of them, O.J.'s first kiss, uh, was completely written by somebody else um, and, and not from her own recollections. But in any case, I just started reading this to myself as I'm sitting in the back of the bookstore, and I thought, this is funnier than anything I could read out of my own book. So I, so I went out there, and that's what I read from. I read from Paula Bearer's book. I said, screw it. It went over a lot bigger than mine. Um, this book, Bad Monkey, I, um, people say, where does the idea come from? Um, the idea for these books comes from the mortgage payment coupons that I get uh, that tell me I have to go to work. Um, but I wanted to do a story that was set in the uh, lower Florida Keys. I, I lived in the Keys for a while, and it's just a, it's sort of a great country. I mean, Key West is in part of the story, and Key West is its own novel and its own crazy place. And up the road a little bit, there's an island called Big Pine Key, which is kind of a cool place, an old, funky Florida place. And then part of it takes place in the Bahamas. I go to the Bahamas quite a bit to fish. I go to the out islands of the Bahamas, and, and it, they're really out there, and it, they have their own set of characters. So I, the first thing I had in my mind was that I wanted to do a book set in these places, and I wanted to um, uh, I wanted to write a book about Medicare fraud, because that is the it crime in South Florida. We, we lead the nation, not just in floating body parts, but in, uh, in Medicare fraud prosecutions. Uh, this, every day you pick up the Miami Herald and somebody, another 50 people were rounded up in a Medicare fraud sweep. Last couple of years, the trend they've noticed among the defendants is that they had previous lives in other areas of crime and other areas of criminal enterprise, most notably drug smuggling. But they turned to Medicare fraud because it was so much easier. The money was just as good. They didn't, need any, they didn't need a gun. They didn't need to be carrying a lot of cash. They didn't need a, a, a car with a big trunk. All they needed was a piece of paper that they filled out and said that they were performing these Medicare, whatever treatments, or buying things, like literally billing for bedpans, non-existent bedpans, to patients who had been dead five years. And the, the great thing about Medicare fraud, and I know I'm not suggesting you get into it, but... <laughs> 
what makes it so appealing to criminals, and, and we don't have just, it's not just dopers that went into it. I mean, they've had armed robbers, people that just said, why are we taking all these chances when the government will literally give you the money? The, the way the system worked for many, many years was the, the claims come in to Medicare, and they pay them immediately. And only months later, when they noticed something unusual, do they then come back and question the claim and start asking questions. So that you have a window of opportunity. You have a few months to make as much money as you can in a storefront operation in, in Hialeah, and you, you shut it down just before the feds get there. I just found it very interesting because these things are proliferated. Everywhere you go, there's a, a medical clinic in a little storefront in, in Dade or Broward County. So I wanted to do something about Medicare fraud. And, I, and I, of course, as every writer who has literary aspirations, I, I wanted to put a monkey in the book. Um, <laughs> think about some of the great books in American literature and how they could have been improved by just one monkey. I saw the, the Gatsby movie the other night with my wife. And that big party scene, I said to her, I said, the only thing that's missing is a damn monkey. You, if you put a monkey in the middle of that, you got it, you know. But uh, the reason I, I turned to the monkey in this case is because I, I literally, I, every movie I went to that had a monkey in it, the Hangover movie, every, every, every movie, every comedy has a monkey, TV sitcoms have, there's just monkeys everywhere, and it was always sort of a gratuitous monkey. It was, it was a monkey that was thrown in for just for purely comic effect, and it was no, you didn't know anything about him, and he was just there to act impish and, and, and fiendish, and then he's off stage. And I wanted to, I wanted a monkey with depth, I wanted a... <laughs> You know, I wanted a monkey with a backstory that, that was compelling. Uh, now, he, now, it's true, he's a very, very bad monkey, and, and I will tell you from some personal experience, they're all bad. <laughs> if anyone has a monkey for a pet and he tells you it's a good monkey, he's lying to you. They're not, they're not good. But this one, by the time you learn more about Driggs, the monkey, you appreciate where he's come, what his arc of his life has taken him to this spot, and you understand a little bit why he's so bad. He was a show business monkey because everyone was cashing in on this monkey thing, and he, so he was born into a show business family. His, his mother had been a show business monkey, and a great uncle had been a show business monkey, and, and uh, so he was of acting lineage, and so he, and he was raised in, in this monkey farm in Santa Barbara. But he was always a little bit bad, and, and uh, one reason I liked the Bahamas, they filmed uh, all the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean movies down there in Exuma, which is not far from the Andros Island where part of this story takes place. And as you know, there's one of those monkeys in, in, the, in the pirate movies, the Caribbean movies. And if you know anything about Hollywood, they don't travel all the way from L.A. to the lower Bahamas with just one monkey. They've got a stand-in monkey, a stunt monkey. They've got a whole posse of monkeys that have to come that are on screen. So um, here's the what-if game that I always play. What if one of those monkeys that had come all this way, this was his big chance, and what if he really screwed up and he got fired? And, and I'll tell you the first thing that happens if you get fired uh, from a big Hollywood movie in, in all the way in the Bahamas and you're a monkey is they're not paying your way back to L.A. That's the first thing. <laughs> I've dealt with Hollywood studios. That ticket ain't going to be there. 
And if you're a trainer and you've got a whole bunch of these monkeys, you're not going to fly one monkey all the way back to LAX. You're going to cut that monkey loose in the Bahamas. He's gone. He's out of there. He's hit the bricks. And my monkey ends up in, on this little island. In, but he's famous already as the, as the Johnny Depp monkey. Because even if you get fired from them, you're still kind of a movie. So that's the great thing about Hollywood. You, this guy's like the little Charlie Sheen of monkeys. But <laughs> he's already got the big rep. That's where he's coming from. That's where the monkey's coming from. The other main character I'll talk about a little bit is the, uh, I don't really have heroes or good guys, but there's a protagonist, I guess. And his name is Andrew Yancey, and he was a detective in the Keys. And uh, he gets in some trouble early on. He has a romantic entanglement with the wife of his dermatologist. In Florida, this is a, truly a question of torn loyalties, because if you find a good dermatologist in Florida... And, you know, it's, oh, boy, who, i got to choose between him or the wife. It's, it's, a, it's not always an easy call. Um, but anyway, Yancey is sort of a good soldier at heart, and he, he, he's trying to do the right thing. And, he, and if you're familiar with Key West, Mallory Square is the big area. Everyone goes at night to watch the sunset. And it's also, sadly, now where they park the cruise ships. So you've got hundreds and hundreds of mutants streaming off the cruise ships you know, to buy their T-shirt and get back on. And why, when all this unloading in front of hundreds of witnesses with iPhone cameras, uh, Yancey has an altercation. He thinks that the dermatologist is, is or has threatened to hit his wife, not Yancey's wife, the woman he's sleeping with. And he rushes. He happens to be vacuuming his car out at the time, Yancey, and he sees this happening. And he, the only weapon he has is the little portable uh, vacuum, little dust buster, which he uh, uses in an unsavory way upon the, uh, upon the dermatologist, the, the crime that's witnessed by many. And so he can no longer be on the police force, uh, and he's very lucky not to be going to jail. But because there's a Bubba system in Key West, sort of an insider system, the sheriff gets him a job as a uh, health inspector of restaurants. He's on the Roach Patrol. And he goes from solving crimes to now counting insect parts and rat droppings. Trust me, it's not a lateral career move. Uh, and the first thing that happens on his new job, within weeks he's lost 30 or 40 pounds because he can no longer eat. Uh, the things that he sees are so horrifying to him that he can't eat. So the, the book opens, oh, by the way, and he has a severed arm in the freezer of his house, a uh, human arm. Now, the, the way the arm gets there is that uh, two tourists are out fishing, chartered a fishing boat in Key West, and they're out trolling for tuna and uh, kingfish or whatever. And, and the husbands in these scenarios always are the ones that have to, if there's a big fish on, of course, they, we have to go grab the fishing rod because we're the studs. And so the, the husband bravely goes back and reels up when the fishing rod bends. And it's a human arm uh, severed, and there is a digital manifestation that suggests whoever died wasn't happy with the world. Uh, that's the opening kind of cinematic and again I'm not I'm not seeing it as the next Citizen Kane or anything like that but I'm just saying there is an iconic element to it uh, so Miami this wouldn't even make the newspaper uh, trust me there are so many body parts flying around in Miami that wouldn't make the newspaper but in in Key West, which is very tourist-dependent, the sheriff panics because body parts are not what you want to see in a headline. You don't want to see any reference to any severed anythings in Key West. 
So the sheriff says to Yancey, okay, you want to get on my good side, hang on to this arm. And it winds up in his freezer. And so he's got that going on, and, and that, that gets sort of in the way of his thinking. But he starts thinking that everyone's saying it was just a boating accident. There's nobody been reported missing. But he said somebody's sunk a boat somewhere, and uh, the sharks got the rest of them, and we've just got to wait for the relatives to show up looking for them, and then we'll get rid of it, and the case will be closed. Nobody thinks there's foul play except Yancey, and he's right. And so th- he thinks if he solves this mystery and he, he solves this crime, that he'll be welcomed back as a detective, and he can get off the roach patrol, and his life will be wonderful again. And, of course, it doesn't work exactly like that. He winds up in the Bahamas in, a, in the middle of a hurricane, which is not a good place to be anyway. By the way, we don't have... This is the interesting thing, and I don't mean to disparage the people who do this, these, uh, these storm chasers, um, uh, that, you know, tornadoes, let's drive into the middle of the tornado. Uh, nobody does that in hurricanes. So the whole phenomena that sprung up with this reality shows these tornado chasers is, is very fascinating to those of us in Florida who can't wait to get out of the way of the hurricane. And I've written about these storms before. I love it when nature sort of rises up and, and cleans the slate. I have to say that I, even though it's a pain in the ass when there's a hurricane and, and it floods and everything, you know, it's, not, it's a lot of damage and all that kind of stuff. There is something about nature just taking over and just shaking you up. I mean, it, it, Sandy was an example. There's a storm come out of nowhere sort of the wrong time of the year and really just saved all its strength for the Northeast, which was very weird. Makes you wonder what's going on. But, but I think there is something for, from a novelist's point of view being attracted to not natural disasters, but sort of natural explosions of of what passed, especially if you're from Florida. I'm always rooting for nature. I have to say, I went on a morning show years and years ago when I was just kind of starting out, and they stupidly invited me, and I think it was Good Morning America. It was Good Morning America when Charlie Gibson was there. That's how far back this goes. And they were doing a show on a very sort of ritzy island off, right off Miami called Fisher Island, which is a private island. You have to take a ferry boat in your car to get there, and only rich people live there. And somehow ABC winds up there doing the morning show, and they just want to do like a set Florida piece. And my publisher says, oh, this is a great idea. You'll be introduced you know, as a Herald, Miami Herald columnist, and you can push your books. And Okay. So I go down there, and right away I know that I'm, I'm seriously in the wrong place and also that they're going to regret this because um, <laughs> you're sitting there and F- Fisher Island is fairly garish. I mean, it just doesn't look like it belongs in Florida, but I mean, there's a lot of things that don't, but this is just big and it's, you know, and so we're sitting there, we're all stage up and there's a group and this is a great group and I, I don't know everybody was there, I'll tell you. It was me, Don Shula, the great social historian Don Shula. <laughs> And uh, Jeb Bush, before he was governor. So they're sort of passing the baton around, talking about giving the pep talk, you know, for South Florida. And and then they come to me, and Charlie was saying, well, now you've written some stuff uh, in your columns and in your books that uh, the Chamber of Commerce must not like. I said, no, they don't like it very much, Charlie. And I said, said, look, there's nothing wrong with South Florida that a Force 5 hurricane couldn't fix. (laughs) Oh, this is before Andrew, by the way. I'm just going to say that. So anyway, this, there's a pall of, of doom that settles over the set at that point. And he goes, 
you know, and he's tried to switch the, the subject to overdevelopment and, and just, uh, you know, paving all of the coastline and, and destroying the Everglades, which I'm always happy to talk about that. And he said, well, you see, what, what, be more specific. I said, well, you could start with a development just like this. And I put my Fisher Island right. I didn't know because no one had told me, that, of course, that Fisher Island was comping all the rooms for these people. <laughs> that had invited ABC down to help them sell condos by just showing the place, and here I am trashing it. It was, it was not maybe my best moment, but I said what they asked me to say. I, wasn't, I haven't been invited back on any of that, but uh, so you, you do get into some trouble. So I guess some of the characters in my novels get away, say and do and get away with things that I wish I could say and do and get away with. And that's one of the great selfish pleasures of writing these books. You know, in, in the newspaper business, back when I was a reporter on, on the city desk and on the investigations team, the problem, not a problem, but the fact was that you can't write your own endings to stories. And very, very seldom do the stories, I'd be blunt with you, very seldom are there happy endings to stories that you end up having to go out and cover. Um, but the great thing about the novels is I, I get to write the endings I want, and the bad guys get exactly what they deserve. I spend a lot of time thinking up what to do to the bad guys. <laughs> and usually it's some sort of, it starts with some sort of physical encumbrance, whether it's a live crab hanging off their arm or an alligator. But it, usually it's some manifestation of nature. Disfigurement is always good. Uh, um, you know, something, I don't want them just to, they're bad. I don't want them just to step off a curb and get hit by a bus because that's not satisfying enough. These are really bad people. I want them to suffer in a literary way, of course. You know, I mean, these guys, I want them to be hobbled, humiliated, and I feel so good at the end of it. And the readers have come to expect this from me now. I'm under a lot of pressure to, when, when, when I'm trying to get rid of a bad guy to make it something really hideous happen to him. And, and, and poetic in some way, and you run out of ideas. You run out of ideas after a while. I always tell people who come to Florida, always root for the alligators. And they said, you mean the gators, Florida gators? I said, no, the alligators. I root, I root, you root for your little poodle, I'll root for the alligator. How does that sound? <laughs> they love that. I was going to talk a little bit about in, in the book. This is something everybody can relate to. One of other, there's sort of a subplot with Yancey. He's got this little, very modest, on a cop salary, he's got kind of a modest house on Big Pine Key on a little gravel lot, and he's built this little house. And the only thing he treasures in the world, really, at the end of the day, is he can sit on the deck of his house and he can watch the sun go down over the Gulf of Mexico. And it's really a spectacular thing. And, and that's all he cares about. He wants a rum drink in his hand, and he wants to watch his sunset. So, but then this guy has bought the empty lot next to his, a fellow who's not from Florida but who's a real estate speculator, and he's going to build a spec house on that lot and sell it and turn it over as fast as he can. And the house has risen to a high level, way beyond the building code, which in the Keys doesn't mean anything. But the bigger it gets, the less and less of the sunset Yancey is getting to see. So he's, one, he's a person who fantasizes a lot about revenge, and he starts thinking about things that would make it very difficult for a real estate agent to show that spec house. And a series of events occurs, none of which he takes the blame for, but one of them involves a deceased raccoon, a roadkill raccoon. Uh, we have an abundance of those in the Keys, sadly. We have lots of raccoons, and some of them get hit by cars. And usually the, the, the accepted 
attitude toward these is you drive around them and you leave them in the road. You do not collect them for personal use. <laughs> as, as with many of the sickest things in these novels, I always get accused of making them up, and very frequently they come from real life. Several years ago, a, a friend of mine said, can you come over to the house? I need your help with something. And he'd been very helpful to me, and I said, sure. And I went over, and I met him at the door, and, and, he, and he said, well, I have a dead raccoon in the backyard. I said, well, that's too bad. Um, he said, I need you to help me. I said, you, you mean you want, you want to bury it? He goes, oh, no, no, I'm not going to waste it. And this right away should have been my cue to maybe get, <laughs> get in my car at that point and claim to have something better to do. He said, what, what do you mean, John? What, and, he, and he said, well, um, the house next door. And I knew that he had some neighbors that had moved out that he was very fond of. And he, he'd heard a rumor about some people that were going to buy the house next door that he didn't feel would suit his particular lifestyle. And uh, he wanted to discourage that sale from moving forward. And I sympathized with him, and he said, uh, I'm going to use that raccoon and go over and put it in the house. And I said, well, I can't. I said, I, I can't do that. I said, I will help you move it as far as the property line. But I, <laughs> I don't, I'm not sure what the law is on this, to be honest with you. I don't know what, I don't even know if there's any statutes in Florida that govern such behavior. But I'm going to stop at the property line, and then, then I'm going to imagine that I don't know what happens to the raccoon after that. And that's the way I left it. I turned my back on the scene. But I do know that house did not sell for many, many months. <laughs> became known in real estate circles as the raccoon house. Not a good selling point. Uh, the rumors were that real estate agents were going out of their way to avoid showing the house. So it did have that effect, but that's the sort of act of friendship that stays with you a while, and I file it away, and I think I'll ha someday I'll be able to use that in a novel, and people will accuse me of really being warped to think something like that up. That's usually truly the case. I think what, what's supposed to happen now, if I'm not mistaken, is that I think I'm supposed to step off the stage and then we're going to come back in a minute and there'll be some questions that you all will have written on index cards, uh, hopefully acceptable for this fine audience. And I'll try to do my best to answer them. And, and thank you for listening to this. We'll, we'll talk some more in a minute. I'm Virginia Prescott, and this is Word of Mouth. Today, NHPR and the Music Hall present Writers on a New England Stage, recorded at the Music Hall in Portsmouth with Carl Hyacin. He's the best-selling author of comic crime fiction novels for adults and young adults. His newest is called Bad Monkey. Hyacin was an investigative reporter and then became a columnist for the Miami Herald, where he still writes about the corruption, violence, environmental degradation, and tawdrier aspects of his home state. Like his protagonists, Hyacin grew up in a Florida that was once a beautiful place. During his lifetime, the state's population has grown fivefold and swelled with people drawn to the state's undeveloped beaches and relaxed pace, features that now exist only in memory. Hyacin, along with John McDonald, helped create the Florida noir genre, black comedies characterized by petty criminals, cheap scam artists, and dim-witted villains. I sat down with Carl Hyacin on stage at the Music Hall and asked him why Florida attracts these kind of characters. 
I think it's the same thing that draws, has drawn people there for 150 years. I think there is an iconic image of Florida that people still have to this day, and, and it's always been a place where dreamers went, where where families moved, where even, I mean, going back to the Civil War, it was a, it was a place where uh, escaped slaves ran to hide. I mean, it's, it's just always had that magnetic attraction. And in later years in my lifetime with the sort of the migration of senior citizens from the Northeast Corridor and the Midwest, with the big influx of, of older folks like that, you, you have a predatory element that moves with the pack. And, uh, and, and so you have crimes that are just directed, sadly, at that. I think there's always also been sort of an outlaw mentality to living down there. It was just, uh, it was all about the money from the very beginning. Well, we have this sort of Hyacinian, if I can use that word, um, situation sure. with this arm picked up on this fishing trip. Yes. And that arm belongs to a man named Nick Stripling. Yes. Uh, what is his scam? Well, he was the Medicare uh, guy that I was telling you, the fraud guy, and his scam was this. I don't know if you all get these commercials up here in New Hampshire, but in Florida, where we, we late at night, where we, when we, as I said, we have a lot of, you know, older folks. So they target uh, infomercials towards them, and one of the infomercials that you always saw was the infomercials for these. Um, they're they're like motorized wheelchairs, but they're the they're really they're, they're scooters, but they're really refined. They're really sleek and they're expensive. And and some people genuinely need them. I mean, there are genuine medical need for some people, but they were marketing basically. If you just feel a little bit tired, you need one of these scooter chairs. And then they would have a picture of, you know, Grandma zipping around the kitchen doing wheelies. You know, they'd have the video, and she'd wave as she went. And when I saw these ads, I, I knew right away where it was headed because at the very end of every one of the commercials, it said, the best part is you don't pay a thing. That means they're filing Medicare. The way the scam works is this. You pay somebody. You have somebody on the inside at a hospital or a clinic, and they provide you with a list of Medicare numbers and Social Security numbers of real patients, real people over age 65. You can buy these lists on the black market. And then you start filing claims for these people. And you start getting money for goods and services that have not been rendered to these folks. They don't even know their claims being filed on their own behalf. But you can make millions and millions of dollars that way. So that's next thing. And, and, but the scooters are the high-end item. They're much bigger profit margin than you would make on bedpans, you know. <laughs> And, um, yeah, these have iPod docks. They have iPod like docks. They got uh, <laughs> headlights if you want to take them out at night. I mean, they're really, they're pretty, it's pretty cool. But Yancey catches on to this. Even though he's assigned to Roach Patrol, he can't yeah. really help himself no. and starts catching on to this and following this. He's kind of one of those highest in, not heroes, let's call him a protagonist. Yeah. A guy with a, a sense of outrage about what's going on, but you managed to give them enough sense of humor. To, to sort of veil that? Well, I think he's flawed like all of us are, and I think he's made some mistakes. But at the same time, when you, you learn a little of Yancey's backstory, one of the things that made him want to become a police officer was that um, on the day of his uh, grandmother's funeral in, in Miami, somebody broke into her apartment and stole all her stuff. That happens. People read the funeral notices, and they find out where they live, and they know everybody's at the funeral, and they rip the place off while they're at the funeral. So, nice guys, huh? So, anyway, so he has been carrying this with him. That really steered him to the idea that, I, you know, if I can arrest just somebody doing that sort of thing. So he does have a bit of idealism, but at the same time, he's got kind of a temper, and, and he's trying to do his best on the Roach Patrol, but it's a, it's a tough, tough gig to go into some of these kitchens. And, uh, you know, I, I mean, I like him as a character, maybe 
more than some of the others. I, I, you know, he's had made some bad romantic decisions, you know. What with the dustbuster and everything? Yeah, I mean, he gets swept up in the moment and... Uh, <laughs> But sorry, you, you know, sorry. one of the things that you say, you write about him when he's uh, thinking about why he became a cop, he says something like, such a small, shabby crime causes so much heartache. It's true, though. Yeah, and, but is this one of the things that drives you? I mean, there are all these, these shabby criminals, but you give them kind of a backstory in, your, in well, your books. Well, that's because in real life they do have backstories. I mean, one of the great things about coming from the, a newspaper background is you, you get not great things, but one of the instructive things is you get to interview people in jail or people who are on trial for crimes, and you understand that that very seldom is the is the TV version of a crime or a criminal uh, reflective. All these people came from somewhere. I mean, I and I mean, you learn that there's humanity even in some horrible, horrible people. And I and I'll never forget. I was interviewing a biker, a motorcycle gang member, one time, and his nickname was Stitch. And it, it wasn't because of his his apparel either. It was uh, because of the way he used a knife. And uh, he was in jail. He was facing murder charges for something. And I said, well, you know, this was, and he said it wasn't murder, it was self-defense. And, and then he, he tells me what happened. He walked into a bar, and the guy drinking next to him said, my tattoo is bigger than yours. So he, he gutted him with a knife. And, but here's the, way, here's the thing about it, though. The way he tells the story to me is with such earnestness and sense of outrage that he was completely justified in this act. And it's fascinating in a way to talk to people like that, that in their world... However, it went down. Okay, this is what happens. I stab him, and now I'm in the can. So there we go. But it helps you later as a novelist when you, when you are doing fictional renderings later, you understand that there is a spark of some humanity even in the worst sort of person. Hmm. You don't have a lot of recurring characters no. in your books, except for Skink. Skink I would say comes back. Um, yeah. the governor. Yeah, the old governor. No, you're nice. Well, first off, where did you find a model for an incorruptible Florida politician? There was, <laughs> that's a good question. Um, there, are, there have been uh, governors and, and public officials in Florida who I've admired, actually, and, but I didn't use them a, as a model for this character at all. What I invented was a... I needed... This was in a book called Double Whammy, which, where the he first, first surfaces, which is about... Yeah, thank you. It was, it was really a twisted book. It was the second one I did. It was about sex, murder, and corruption on the professional bass fishing circuit. And uh, I was, uh, yeah, I was, uh, I was, I was racing to, to, to get my book out before Updike got his out. And he never, and then he just, he just quit writing it as soon as mine appeared. Anyway, um, but there had been all these problems in Florida with these, these rednecks cheating at these fishing tournaments and putting sinkers in the bass and, and, and I mean, to get the prize. They get, like, a free truck out of the deal. You'd, so I just decided to make fun of it. But I needed, in this one scene, I needed a hermit guy. He was in the woods, and he was really only going to be around for a chapter or two. But I gave him this backstory as, as a former governor, and, and he's living off roadkill. He went crazy in Tallahassee and, and, and deserted his left in the middle of his term, not like Sarah Palin. Um, uh, she left, went to Fox News. This guy went to eat roadkill. Um, and he, he's one of these great characters who, in my mind, he came to life, and he sort of he, he became the moral compass of that book. He was fun to have around. I liked what he had to say, so I kept him around. But that, that's the great thing when you're not working from an outline 
is that you can just change directions and say, this character is, I'm going to keep him around. So I did. Here's a question from the audience. You've said that Skank is influenced by many people. Mm-hmm. Jim Harrison and John Muir are obvious influences. <laughs> who, who are other people you would say have influenced you? For Skank? No. I mean, neither of them for Skank. But, I mean, as writers, I'd go, I mean, there's so, so many. Har- Jim Harrison, obviously, is a great writer, and he's a, he's a friend of mine as well now. I've been lucky enough to get to know some of these people. John D. McDonald was a big influence on me. Yeah, because uh, the great Travis McGee series that he wrote, I was born in Fort Lauderdale, and I grew up there, so this was in my backyard. I knew all the streets. I knew the, the docks where the, the, the busted flush, the houseboat was kept that Travis lived on. So to me, it was the first time I'd read a book that was set where I lived, and I thought that was very cool. And it was also the first time I'd read any kind of entertainment fiction, if you will. Well, you're turning the page as fast as you could because the story was so great. But at the same time, he was sneaking in all this wonderful social commentary about what was happening to Florida. And this was back in the 60s, before it was hip to stand up and call out the developers and and the corrupt politicians and all this. But he went after him, and he did it in a very sneaky way, and it was was all weaved into the narrative of the novel. And I thought, man, to me, it opened the possibility that you can write something that's really fun and entertaining and good, and you still... You can still get something off your chest while you're doing. You can still sneak a couple of good ones in there. And I'd say he was a big influence. Mm. You just mentioned that you grew up in Fort Lauderdale. And obviously, so much has changed, you know, mm. just in your yeah. lifetime. You mentioned development a little yeah. bit earlier. And Skink, of course, is, is a great protector of the Everglades. That's right. kind of what he does. And I'm just wondering about, I've heard that you're going to recreate Skink in a children's book or a young, young yeah, adult Yeah, he's book? going to be in the next children's book. I've decided I can't protect the kids anymore. <laughs> It's time. It's time. Well, here's a question from the audience. You said you don't have heroes, but your kids' books do. Yeah, they do. Why do we we give kids heroes and not adults? Well, in the kids' books, kids themselves are the characters, the main characters in the book. So they come into these novels. The great thing about the kids' books is you can sort of hit the ground running with the plot because the kids really have sort of a blank slate. Some of them, not all of them, but some of them have had, you know, in, in Hoot, the character that, that was called Mullet Finger certainly had a very unhappy home life, and you can write about all that, but you're still you're talking about an 11, 12, 13-year-old kid. They come into your story with a lot less baggage than my adult characters do. I mean, I don't have to explain, you know, five marriages and a meth habit. Uh, <laughs> You know, I mean, their kids really are. They're, they're these great young, just, and, and that's how you want them to be. You, they want you want them to be kids you meet every day. So, so they're heroic, and they do heroic things. But the the, the great the thing about those books is that the, the, a lot of the theme they're smart ass, they're irreverent, which kids like. They're funny, which the kids like, and they make fun of grown ups, which I've been doing my whole life in the newspaper business. So it it isn't that big a transition, but. In the adult novels, there are characters who are good characters, who, who, whose hearts are in the right place and who have a true moral compass. They may not be classic heroes in the sense of, you know, being all good and riding off into the sunset, but you're rooting for them very strongly nonetheless. Yeah, like Yancey. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's got a really clear sense of right and wrong. He does. But maybe a little flexible <laughs> sense of the law when it comes to the spec right. house next yeah. door. Yeah, yes, exactly. <laughs> the dead raccoon, for example. I, I'm still not sure there's a law against that, exactly. 
He also uh, constructs an altar or has someone help him construct an altar, a shrine sort of thing to scare away Santeria, <laughs> a Santeria. It's a form of voodoo. Yeah, and, and so when the workers show up, there's a sacrificial altar has been set up in the house with some unsavory uh, details. But it, again, tastefully uh, rendered in the novel. There's nothing too gross about it. Um, I always try to, and even, even the violence, you know, when there is violence or when there is a crime, a lot of it is sort of off camera, if you will. I don't get any kick out of, out of writing a, um, a, just, you know, a gross or, or, or graphic murder scene. I really don't. Even the severed arm is rendered in a way which you, you, you'll hate yourself, but you'll laugh when you read it. But you also get a little bit into uh, this. This book extends from the Keys, as you mentioned, mm-hmm. to the Bahamas, yeah. and that we have a voodoo queen. Yes, um, a character a called person. the dra- well, a real person. Tell the us, Dragon Queen. Yes, this is a very disturbing character. But in my travels over there, I'd heard about this woman who um, it was described as a voodoo priestess, and uh, many people on the island were very much afraid of. And I said, "Well, tell me more about." It. I was talking to a guy and. He said, well, at least three of her previous boyfriends died under very mysterious circumstances when they, uh, after they broke up with her. And they all had symptoms of poisoning, and they all died. She was never prosecuted. And the fourth fled to Cuba. He left and took off, went to Cuba. So I checked the story with other people, and they told me this was all true. So I became fascinated with it, and they said, you know, she puts curses on people, she does all this stuff. So I sort of, I entertained briefly the notion of going to, not visit her or, or, or date her or anything, but I certainly, I, I kind of wanted to catch a glimpse of her because all the physical descriptions I had been told were quite outlandish as, as the character in the book. But I, I, I chickened out because I couldn't, these were some big strapping dudes I was talking to and they wouldn't, they wouldn't take me to her house. They said, well, drop you at the foot of the hill and here's it, you walk over the hill and you go by behind the mango tree and down there and then you'll see her down there. I said, yeah, I think I'll pass. I think I'll let my imagination. Uh, but she's, she is, to this day, a real person. Well, your imagination paints a great character. And she's actually hired by um, a simple man, Neville. And he is losing his home because of a real estate scam. Now, that's another thing that this book also hinges on. People being willing and eager to pay huge amounts of money for waterfront property. And yes, I'd love to get back to that, sort of like how... How Florida has changed in your lifetime? Well, I mean, real estate was always the name of the game. You go back to Henry Flagler when he built the railroad. He didn't build it because he wanted to, to go down there and, and count the, the seabirds. He went down there because he wanted to move some land, move some real estate. And it's not an accident that the railroad went right along the coastline. It was all about opportunity. So it's really nothing new. It's just new manifestations of it. As, the, as more and more of it's gotten bought up and developed, of course, the real estate that's left on the waterfront becomes more and more valuable. And the, the cost of bending the law and getting the law changed to suit whatever you want to build there has gotten a little higher. The politicians, the bribes now have to be a lot more than they were, let's say, 30, 40 years ago. But they're still relatively cheap. I still think we've got the, the, the most easily purchased politicians. And I, I can't document that they're, they're easier to pay off. But I do think that the cost of living being higher in places like Boston and, and Chicago, I think the politicians there probably have to ask for a little more money. Mm. This is from Carol. She graduated Palmetto High School in Miami in 1976, a longtime fan, asks, 
Do you feel your columns and books have impacted people to be more environmentally responsible? No. I, I tell you, I think that any columnist or writer who thinks they're going to change anything is, is delusional. You can't go in with that. Well, here's what I do know happens, at least with, well, the books, too, to some extent, just from the mail I get, is, is, are from folks who thank me, who say, I, I thought I was the only one who thought that way, or I thought, I, I'm glad you wrote that column. I've been saying this for months, and nobody else is saying it. It gives them the sense of, of, of having a voice of someone else that feels the way they do, and you say it strongly. And maybe the next zoning board meeting, they get angry enough to go and to stand up and to do something and say, stop this. Is it going to change the political culture of Tallahassee? Of course not. But it does sometimes illuminate what's going on, and it does embarrass. And any time I can embarrass and humiliate the politician, I mean, that, I, I feel like I've, I've, that's a public service right there. I mean, if, if, look at if you have if you have a seriously... No. If you have a crook in office, if you have someone who's there for personal gain and who's taking money from lobbyists to do something that is clearly not in the public interest, but it's going to benefit him and his buddies and his rich campaign donors, who's completely forsaken his role as serving the public, the great thing about humor, the satire, is that it's a much more lacerating weapon than if you just get up on a soapbox and you shake your fist and they're crooks and throw them out of art. If you mock them and make fun of them and ridicule them and humiliate them in such a way that their own children don't want to be seen with them, <laughs> then you've done your job. <laughs> you know. When did you figure that out? I mean, you were a reporter, an investigative reporter. When did you get that? I probably after that. I mean, the, the investigative stuff was good because that had real impact, and it was all, you know, it's always on the front page. And, and that sent everybody scurrying. But the ability to do actually the column where the handcuffs come off and the straight jacket comes off, and you can just go nuts with the column, then right away when I saw the reaction of some of the stellar political figures we have, and, and I thought, hey, this is pretty good. They're really unhappy with me. I must be doing something right. <laughs> and it's on both sides. I mean, Democrats, Republicans, it didn't matter. I, had, I really have always tried to be an equal opportunity son of a bitch. If somebody's a crook, I don't care what, what party they're in. But you, somebody's got to go after them and say, look at what this ridiculous thing is. And, and, yeah, I think it was after starting the column and I saw that it got their attention. Well, obviously with novels, you have to, you know, with a column you're doing yeah. something weekly. You're looking at the sort of short-term novels or developing something else. And your characters and your dialogue, I mean, besides... Driggs, the sort of, uh, what, Lindsay Lohan of, of Monkeys. Yes. Yeah. Um, the Dragon Queen, these other characters. Yeah. Some of the dialogue is so funny. There's uh, one of these uh, exercised um, restaurant owners says to Yancey, this ain't Nazi Russia, yeah. <laughs> for example. <laughs> yeah. And there's a, um, there's a country singer who writes this um, post-9-11 anthem called Jesus Don't Speak Jihad. That's right. I mean, yeah. how do you think these Big things head. up? seemed like it would be a good song title. <laughs> and, the, and, the, and, the, and the country western singer, and I like some country western music, but a lot of them have they're interchangeable first and last names. You, you don't know if, if, you're the filling, if you're writing them a speeding ticket, you wouldn't know which was their first or last name because it could be either one. I mean, is it 
Keith or is it Toby? What's your first name? You know, so this guy has one of those. Nobody can, they keep mixing up. Is it this or is it that? Because that's kind of real life. That's just having fun with it. But it's true. Uh, somebody from the audience asked if you could write another song with Warren Zevon, what would it be? But tell us what the first one is. I don't know this we one. We did three songs together, oh actually. Yeah, we, um, he, be, he was friends. He showed up at a book signing of mine in L.A. years ago. And it turned out he was been a fan of the novels, and and he, I've always been a fan of his, and and so we went out, and, and um, he was very clean and sober at that point, and uh, after years of not being, and he drank this Turkish coffee. I remember sitting there and saying, you know, we should do a song together sometime. And so the first song we did together, he he came, he had a gig in in Fort Lauderdale, on the beach in Lauderdale, at some club on the beach in Lauderdale, and I was picking him up at his hotel, and he came down into the lobby and you know in a lot of hotels in Fort Lauderdale they have the big they have all the tourist brochures in these big racks so you know you can see all the different attractions you can go to and there was one and it just said Seminole Bingo Seminole Bingo and he picked it up and he said that'd be a great song title and and he said is there really Seminole Bingo I said yeah this was before the casinos before the casinos they had bingo so when you get back to L.A., so we just started he just, we just started shooting lyrics back and forth on the facts. So Seminole Bingo was the first one. The second one was a song called Rottweiler Blues um, about a, 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 what was one of the lines? Uh, the Rottweiler was um, yearning to chew on a gangster tattoo. That was uh, very, uh, I'm, I don't understand why the Grammys committee overlooked that one. <laughs> And the, uh, the third song we did, I was working on a book um, uh, uh, that had a pop singer in it. It was called Basket Case. And uh, one of the publicists at Random House said, you think Warren would, would, could, would write a song for this? I said, I don't think he's going to write it. And I called him up. He said, oh, I'd, I'd be fun. So we wrote the lyrics together for a song called Basket Case about a fairly dysfunctional girlfriend. And, of course, neither of us had any personal experience in that area. <laughs> Okay, here's a lovely question. Dear Carl, I am 68 years old. Am I too old to write my first novel? It's a good question. No, of course not. I always tell, never too old. And, and I, I tell people they're never too young and they're never too old. It's just um, the commitment is, that here's the deal, if you want to do it, it's, it's, it's your life for, the, for however long it takes you to finish the novel. It's not really something you can do part-time and do well. But I always encourage people to, to sit down and write and keep writing. When young people ask me that, when I do schools and, and things for the, for the young adult books, they always ask, how do you get started? And I said, the best way to get started, to become, to learn about writing is to start keeping a journal. And every day you write something in that journal, even if it's a couple paragraphs, might be five pages, and it's just for you. You keep it to yourself. But you, you'd be amazed how fast the journal grows and grows and grows. And by and then about six months after you've started that journal, look at the difference in the writing between the first page and the last page you've written. And you know that you're teaching yourself how to write because that's what, that's what it really is. All the writers I knew who are successful writers, when they were young, they were uh, absolutely crazed readers. That's what got them into writing was a love of reading books. And that's how they learned to write. Nobody taught them how they learned to love the language and the craft of writing because they were readers. And I think that would be something, you know, you have, I'm guessing, whoever you are out there, that you love books. You have to love books if you're going to write. Doesn't that interfere with your fishing time? <laughs> it, it obliterates most of my fishing time, but 
I don't know what else I would do, possibly do for a living. You know, I mean, uh, you know, I, I have no idea. It's the only thing I'm qualified, barely qualified to do. So, but what my, my point getting back to the writing is that it does consume you. You have to understand when you're writing fiction in particular, you created this cast of characters, in this case, Yancey and the Dragon Queen and the, his girlfriends, Rosie and everybody. But they live with you just like your family for the period of time that it takes to write the book. They exist in your head and your conscious. You go to sleep at night thinking about them. You wake up in the middle of the night thinking about a sentence or even an adjective that you wrote that day that may not be right. I mean, it's a very consuming thing. It's not something you can just say, I'm going to be writing in a novel in my spare time, because that isn't how they get written. And it is a challenge to those who live with you and that love you and that are in your life that you become sort of possessed by this thing. Even for very, very good, very fast writers, I always tell people, all writing is hard work. And if it's not hard work, you're not doing it right. If it's not torture, you're not doing it right. You once called South Florida Newark with palm trees, I believe. Yeah, and I apologize. Now I've, I've apologized to Newark many times since then, and I, I will now. All right, so how would you advise somebody who says, I'm thinking about retiring to Florida. It's so beautiful, natural world, you know? That's a good question. I get this all the time. I get letters from readers who say, I love your books. Please don't hate me, but I'm moving to Florida anyway. And I always respond the same way, and I say, you're exactly the sort of person that we need in Florida, somebody who gets it, and somebody who understands and appreciates it. That's why you're moving there. There are plenty of people that I would be happy to see pack up and head north on I-95 that don't have a clue, that would just trash the place, and they don't even appreciate it. But someone who knows enough to write me that letter gets it. So all of you are welcome. Um, if I could just scare away the rest of them, I'd be, I'd be ahead of the game. My baby is a basket case. Well, before I thank Carl, I have to thank some of the people who make this production happen. Executive producer and live stage presentation director, Patricia Lynch. Associate producer and communications director, Margaret Talcott. New Hampshire Public Radio president, Betsy Gardella. New Hampshire Public Radio live show producers tonight, Taylor Quimby and Sarah Plord. Our broadcast producer, Rebecca Lavoie. The live sound and recording engineer, Noah Lefebvre. And the musical director and band, Bob Lord and Dreadnought. And please join me in thanking Carl Hyacinth. Thank you. Thank you, Virginia.